Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working. Not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Hello, everyone. The last couple of episodes have focused on retail media networks and the associated white paper produced by the Walton College of Business. If you're new to the topic of retail media networks, you might find it hard to follow or understand the plethora of new terms that get thrown about in conversations. So I wanted to create an episode that steps back and just explains the top 20 words that you're most likely going to run across, such as PDPs, clean rooms, DSPs, and many others. To do that, I invited in an industry expert, Chris Perry, who focuses on educating companies about retail media networks and e-commerce. I asked him to break down for us these terms and tell us what they mean and why they matter. I also asked Chris to pretend he was speaking to his grandmother. If you're a newbie to this topic of retail media, this episode should make it a little bit easier to put the pieces together. Thank you so much, Andy. Uh, my name is Chris Perry. I'm the Chief Learning Officer at First Mover. We're a CPG e-commerce education organization and change management advisory partner. And really, this comes from a place of being a practitioner in this space. Both my business partner and I, our co-founders of First Mover, have been in the trenches in e-commerce for over a decade across multiple uh, CPGs you may have worked at or know well, uh, Kellogg's, Mondelez, Reckitt, uh, Wellness Pet Company, Kimberly Clark, between the two of us, um, and then have been in this digital or brand marketing space. So you can definitely say our, 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 sub, our subtitles are nerds. Um, but we're nerds that are passionate about actionable strategy in this space. I love it. And retail media networks right now is one of the hot topics that everyone's talking about. And one of the challenges with it is there's so many different acronyms and words to understand it. And many people come to this space from different backgrounds, whether it's from a sales orientation or shopper marketing or perhaps uh, performance media. And when you get those different angles coming in, it's hard to look at the end-to-end -end understanding of it and pick apart those, those things. So inevitably, you run across uh, words that like, okay, what does that mean? And so today is really about speaking to your grandmother and explaining some of these words end-to-end. -end. So we'll start with how it works. And let's just take uh, retail media networks. Right, so a lot of times you'll hear RMN as an acronym or even RMG as Retail Media Group. Um, all that is, that's an acronym for Retail Media Networks or Retail Media Groups. These are often the third-party but connected advertising service at a key retailer, right? So as an example, Walmart would have Walmart Connect or Amazon would have Amazon Ads or uh, you know, uh, Target would have Roundell. So they are part of their organization, but they're a different entity that manages all the advertising and media for brand advertisers. That's helpful. And I'm also seeing uh, retail media networks being applied as a definition to uh, re uh, 
media platforms that aren't really omni-channel. So is there a significant difference between a retail media network that is omni-channel and has a physical presence versus one that might be uh, just a pure play digital space? I mean, there's definitely differences in terms of capabilities and, uh, and then the measurement potential um, the, and, and the, the potential for the halo impact that can be captured, uh, you know, measured, shared and used to optimize. Um, but, you know, to be honest, when you think of an Amazon who may not yet have the full in-store presence, even though its ambition is there, right, they they are still in most markets where they where they play a, a retail role. They are the first place shoppers go when they're looking for product information, right? They are the Google of product searches. So so the media network ends up haloing out beyond Amazon, right? There's been some really great studies out there showing the off Amazon impact of that media, even, even if I'm pre-shopping or researching on Amazon, I might actually end up buying at a Walmart or a Target or a Kroger or wherever I actually am. So I, there are definitely differences. It's usually in capabilities, tactics, measurement, um, because ultimately the off, the, the, the halo impact of the measurement could be the same depending on how scaled your investment is. Okay, that's super helpful. And, and you're dying to say the word platform often on platform, which is our, our next two. So uh, when you hear the word on platform, uh, w describe what on platform means and how does that work? So on platform generally is referring to, and again, I, I realize, like you said, everybody's coming from different angles, but on platform media would be any of the capabilities or tactics on offered on a retailer site or app right so and that's pretty simple right it's their platforms you know obviously internet or mobile device it's the real estate they own outright that you really can't access without their help um and and, and it's highly coveted for a lot of brands because it's some the, the shoppers they're going after are in that shopping mindset and much closer to that point of purchase and so whether they buy online or offline being on the platform allows us to get, get access to those shoppers at that critical point in their journey. Okay, and so does on-platform include digital assets in a physical store? Does that, is that often considered on-platform? I, I would say maybe up until today, it's, it's historically been considered the digital assets, but it should include because a retailer's platform could be any of their own real estate, right? Any 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 real estate, physical or digital, or in the future in the metaverse, right, that they own, that's their on-platform capability. So really traditional shopper marketing tactics should be considered on-platform. It just, ha maybe you could call it in-platform, right, because it's in-store. But yes, as we're thinking really omni, and, and Andy, I know you're pushing that very thoughtful agenda about the omni mindset. We want on-platforms, anything in the retailer's ecosystem ecosystem very good well that almost self-describes what off-platform is but that's not always clear so could you when you hear the word off-platform retail media network activity what does that typically mean so, so in that in that sense it would be anything outside the retailers ecosystem but but increasingly and, and this is actually part of training that we do a lot of just making sure we clarify i'd almost call that indirect retail media right now it's it depends on who you're buying it from. If a brand buys their own media on Facebook and links and drives the traffic to a Walmart, 
right? That is indirect retail media because they're the ones driving. It's just they didn't buy it from Walmart Connect, right? From Walmart's retail media network. Um, but Walmart may be able to sell you um, and you know does off-platform capabilities using their targeting data, which becomes really interesting because now I can find Andy, my shopper, wherever Andy goes, right? And, and even though Andy is the specific shopper I really want to go after because he's bought my product in the past, but he's lapsed and, and I want to get him to reactivate. So off-platform is a, a way to really expand beyond that point of purchase opportunity and get people at other points in the funnel, if you will. And what's the adoption rate, as far as you can tell, of brands choosing to spend their off-platform money, because they're currently spending off-platform, uh, through a retail media network? That, that's a great question. So this is, this is like the contentious debate in the industry today, because you still have a little bit of church and state happening in the industry, uh, because ultimately, most of these dollars were sitting in the brand team's national or, you know, market level budgets and and the shopper budgets and the trade spend uh budgets that were on the sales side or or the customer marketing side were smaller but but adequate to achieve the in-store activation now we've got actually because of all these omni-channel partnerships and these much larger retail media network asks there's a need to go in and pull in more brand side funding um and so I, I would say the adoption rate is high, but I would say that there isn't necessarily a willingness or a, a desire to do it because now there's a little bit of turf war going on internally. But I think part of this is a mindset shift of how we how we look at retail media as not sales versus marketing, but as one in the same, if it's achieving the objectives that the brand really wants to want, wants to target. And do all retail media networks have off-platform capabilities, or is that really uh, a mixed bag? It's it's one thousand percent a mixed bag, and even when somebody says they now offer it, they may literally only offer a select amount. Uh, you know, one type of one type of off-platform display, whereas others are you know really pioneering into influencer programs and collaborative ads on Facebook and other social platforms. Um, you know, so so it is a mixed bag, but the direction is moving in that full suite of off off platform. I think that the, for me, though, in in, in per, true transparency, what would matter to me is how well you can target off. I like great. You have fifty capabilities, and none of them can target the shopper I'm actually really going after, or have the brand protection in place, or what what whatever my core concerns are. That that becomes the issue. So it's it's more about how you target off-platform that becomes more more interesting to me than just that you can do it. Got it. That's certainly an area that's in early stage development when you start talking about off-platform capabilities. Uh, switching gears a little bit on how this all works, you'll hear the word PDP a lot. And if you're not familiar with what PDP is, uh, it'd be helpful for you to describe what is PDP and how does that relate to the retail media network conversation? That, that's a great one. So PDP bridges back into like our retail presence online. That's our product detail page. That's what PDP stands for. That is the most important omni-channel touch point you have in the entire shopper journey. Whether or not every shopper goes to your site, to a retailer site and looks at your page, it most product detail pages get collectively get more views 
for a brand than their own brand website. So it is a, a critical influencer for those researching. Once what once you know you're buying a brand and it's a lower involvement repurchase, you're not going to go back and re-research it every time. It's a you're autopiloting at, at that point, like any shopper journey. But the PDP A can based on how we optimize it to convert and, and be listed higher up in the search results can be how you gain visibility in this space. It can drive the actual sales online or offline with the influence that that, that we want. Um, when you're doing certain types of retail media, all of that media is going to point to a PDP of sorts, ultimately. So your paid search on a retailer's site is literally featuring the, the search result that clicks into the PDP and you know any off platform or on platform display will link to that PDP. So that PDP is so critical because it's where everything points to, it's like all roads lead to Rome, right? PDP is Rome. And, and really, and, and honestly, I, I see a lot of people roll their eyes when we talk about optimizing the PDP, but I could spend billions of dollars if I had it on traffic and the PDP could be a net with a hole in it. And so if, it. if we're not retail ready, none of that, none of that investment can really capture the, the intended sales that I'm trying to drive with it. And then sometimes I hear the word PDP and I hear the word digital shelf and I can get a little confused. Is digital shelf synonymous with PDP or does it mean something else? It, that, that's a great question. So I generally think of them as one in the same. The digital shelf is where your PDP lives or doesn't live, right? Depending on how visible you are or, or not, right? But when we talk about optimizing the digital shelf, if we're optimizing our PDPs, which are the units of the digital shelf, effectively, we can earn our way to win in visibility on the digital shelf. But that starts with shopability, because even if I'm not showing up at the top, when I type in laundry detergent, right, if I'm not showing up at the top, but I'm highly shoppable, and I drive traffic to it on my own, and I start converting, I can rise up on the digital shelf and earn that visibility, let alone the way I can pay for visibility. So um, so it is synonymous when we say winning the, the digital shelf, it's using the PDP to win, if that makes sense. Got it. And so I guess maybe a layman's look at it might be where you show up on the search results is a bit like where you're at on the digital shelf. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I mean, before we move into again, I say the metaverse because whatever whatever comes next, right, is 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 coming. Um, so we may be the meta shelf at some point, but the digital shelf as it as it pertains to today, whether it's desktop, laptop, tablet, mobile device, even voice, is what ranks at the top is winning, right? And but winning is a is a function of visibility drivers and search engine optimization and keywords and and other things, as well as shopability and avail you know, the availability of your product, promotion, advertising, everything that drove and converted traffic against your PDP. Excellent. Great, great explanation. Let's uh, switch gears a little bit in how it works. Uh, some more technical words that start to lose people. I know it, it lost me at, in the beginning when I started looking at this space, but let's start with DSP. What the heck is a DSP? That's a great question. I equally had that like, huh? Like, you know, when, <laughs> when, when these started being thrown around, I feel like sometimes people throw these around to make themselves feel smarter, but you can too, after today's, yeah. uh, you know, after today's um, uh, you know, uh, review. So DSP stands for demand side platform. And what these are 
are, or intended to be, even though they're evolving, and we'll talk, you know, we, we may talk to some examples here. These are marketplaces that connect, they're often real-time bidding uh, platforms, marketplaces that connect advertisers or brands with the supply side platform or th those who offer the media, right? And that could be, you know, you know, publishers out on, on in, in, you know, the, whether they're retailers or not, or it could be the retailers right now offering us their inventory through this DSP or this marketplace. So it's, it's intended to be, to make, to be a one-stop shop and kind of a middleware uh, of, of sorts between the buyer and the seller to make it easier to get scaled scaled advertising against our objectives. So when a retailer says they have now uh, made a deal with a DSP, what they're basically saying is they're making the inventory they have available for, uh, for brands to advertise through a technical platform that allows some type of program, uh, you know, computer to computer connection versus, you know, picking up the phone and calling Piggly Wigglies and saying, you know, what, what do you have available? Exactly, because in the past, uh, you know, whether whether it's just a retailer's offerings or whether it's a broader DSP in the market with multiple, uh, you know, partners uh, and places that I could advertise, it, it's it's intended to make this more self-service, right? So that I'm not necessarily, to your point, having to call and set, again, there's still some admin going on behind, obviously, when you're buying and, and selling, but the idea is to make the inventory and the demand connect in a seamless way. Um, so that we can activate more quickly and get the results faster. And if a retailer doesn't have a DSP relationship, then you're probably going to be in some type of managed service or a, a different type of relationship, correct? Generally, yes. It'll be a little bit more hands-on, manual. Uh, I, I like to say white glove service. You might not always feel like it's a white glove service, but um, it would be, definitely be a managed service where you're going to have to you know, email or call or engage with a human to, to go procure the media that you want, either on the retailer or off platform, you know, on platform or off platform. And that's not necessarily bad. It just, it, 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 it doesn't make for as much of a seamless experience, which is literally what we're trying to design for the shopper. Why, why as back-end commercial leaders, do we want friction when everybody else is making a frictionless environment, right? So we want that same ease and speed and, and, and ability. Uh, well, I guess maybe one question on DSP real quick is that uh, with a DSP, they're going to take a percentage of that media cost to provide that service, correct? We're in a direct relationship with the retailer. Even if it's managed service, you may not have that cost. So is there a, a media efficiency uh, that you lose a little bit or does it net out? That, that's a great that's a great question. So obviously this will vary by retailer and I don't want to I don't want to say too broadly, you know, because I, I realize. They, they don't publish all of this, but often, yes, if I'm, if I'm buying something from a retailer directly and not through the DSP, in theory, I might not see a fee that, or an extra cost um, for the actual purchase of the media and the activation. However, who's to say, and I, I've seen some of my, in my own time, that the costs weren't inflated a little bit to cover those costs, because technically that retail media network has to break even, if not obviously add a very high profit margin for their retail business that's under pressure. So it, it may just be what I actually see. The DSP may actually just make it a little bit more transparent, but it may look like it's a net new cost when it really wasn't. It actually helped lower the media costs. Sure, there's a fee, 
because you have, you're getting the value of it. But I was getting the fee. I, I just didn't know it because it was in it was in the the higher costs per per media uh, placement. Yeah, great, great explanation. And a close cousin to DSP that I hear a lot is DMP. And uh, what's the difference between a DSP and a DMP? That's a great that's a great uh, question. So I, I I myself thought these were almost very similar things, just a slight slight change. They're actually a little two different types of platforms, right? DSP is that marketplace where the buyers and the sellers sell the media and offer the media to one another um, in ideally a self-service manner. DMP is a data management platform, and that's really intended to be a kind of a centralized tech platform used for collecting, organizing, and really being able to activate large sets of disparate data sources, right? So, um, and we're going to talk a little bit about this in, in terms of data, but but whether it's your owned data or what we call first party, or whether it's second or third party data that I'm buying or procuring from other sources. So it's 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 a way to, it in many cases, it's a way to be able to start targeting, creating targeting groups. There's a lot of different things you can do with DMPs, um, but it's really that tech platform for organizing data, not necessarily for buying the media itself. And when you're talking data, you're not talking creative assets, you're talking about audience. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So, so technically, that we we could go a whole nother like 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 uh, P, you know PIM and DAMS, which is mm -hmm. you know product information management systems and um, data you know digital asset management systems. Those are more for like my my PDP content we were talking about. That would be where I would house all my creative for my ads and whatnot. Those are that's a whole nother that could be a whole nother thing. But DMPS is more for that audience data, right? Emails and other other first party data I might be collecting about my shoppers um, so that I have a place where I can, I can, I can activate that data with, with efficiency. Excellent. Okay. That's a good explanation. Uh, I hear a lot about trade desk. When I hear the word trade desk, I'm not sure is that a company or is that a, uh, a, a wall street type uh, idea of trading stocks, you know, explain trade desk. That's a great one. So it is actually a company, but it definitely sounds, I mean, it's a, it's a smart name um, because it does represent what it is. Um, but I, and, and this is where I would say, when you actually start talking about companies, this is where companies are evolving, obviously to stay, you know, competitively advantageous in the market and to help serve their chosen customers as well. Trade desk is technically today a type of DSP marketplace that would allow their customers, right, to, you know, brand advertisers to be able to purchase lots of different inventory across uh, digital media, uh, you know, social media, TV, in, in some cases, they've got, again, they're evolving their, the types of media they offer, but it's a marketplace where brand advertisers can access this, this media, as in would be for any DSP or demand side platform. They are, really leaning in in a strategic way to help own this retail media space. So they've partnered with Walmart, Walgreens, Albertsons, and I'm sure the list will continue to roll out as, as they realize retail media is such a large and increasing share of overall digital spend and all brand spend. So, um, so they, they today are a DSP, um, but that doesn't mean they're going to stay that way long term. They, I think they have their eyes on being more than just that. And I understand a couple of DSPs providers like Trade Desk really dominate this space right now. Others would be like Critio. Is that correct? Well, yeah, Critio is yes a marketplace. Um, Citrus Ad 
uh, ha has some of those same capabilities. And really, for brands, you would go to a Critio or a Citrus ad in, 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 the, in the past, again, outside of any evolution they take in the market, to access inventory on multiple retailers from one place. Um, and so some of the some of our top retailers in the market have, you know, kind of shared. It's, it's almost like Expedia or Hotels.com, right? Getting a certain number of rooms allocated to them from hotels around the world, right? So there's some inventory being allocated to uh, Critio or, or Citrus Ad from these key retailers that are participating with them that you can access from one place. That's a good, that's a good metaphor, like the hotels.com and such. It's, that's really helpful. And then live ramp, is that another form of a DSP or is that something different? Yeah, so, so that's another company. Um, and actually Trade Desk and Live Ramp are partnering, which uh, in a number of ways, which starts to enable some really cool capabilities that might make them something different in the future, which I keep kind of alluding to. But that's where it's always funny when you try to place a label on a company because they themselves can't evolve, you know, can't stay leaders if they always stay in one bucket. But Live Ramp is, is kind of unique. They are a, an independent identity platform, as they kind of call themselves, really trying to help you or, or key stakeholders in the industry build unified views of individual shoppers, but in a privacy conscious way. So they're really trying to make sure that they can help you ID Andy Murray as the person that you that that we can target, but without giving away Andy Murray's actual personalized information. And so they, they're building on um, kind of IDs for households and individuals, combining all of this data. And actually in partnership with Trade Desk, they've got a lot of things rolling out both in North America and Europe, um, but technically marketers, brand marketers can bid on live ramps identifier for households with all that data pooling together using trade desk platform. So, so now, now I, I, I can really go after the right people using all the right data using two partners. Um, and so not everybody's doing that today, but that's kind of a cool partnership capability here. So, so where Trade Desk is optimizing the inventory available and making it easy to access that through as a DSP, LiveRamp is optimizing the audience and the DMP connection. Correct. Yeah, simple, simple. Okay, very good. Well, now speaking of audience, let's go to a whole nother section and try to better understand some of the uh, words and acronyms under the audience space. Uh, the first one would be first party data. It, you know, tell me about where this party is and, and whose party is it? it so so I, I teased that a little bit er earlier, right? So that first party data among the other types of data would be kinds of data that you would be tapping in your own DMP, right, your data management platform, or potentially through a live ramp or others, right? So first party data is any data you as a company or your retailer as a company is collecting directly from its customers and owning outright. So um, so, so that that would be, you know, again, if I'm a retailer and I'm selling to my, you know, product to my, my consumer, my shopper, I'm collecting quite a lot of data, right? Payment data and emails and contact information and addresses and many, many different things that that would allow me to engage them later. They're behavioral data, right? If I'm more sophisticated, not all retailers are there. Um, brands are collecting some of this, but historically that's been through like, you know, email databases and like CRM 
uh, you know, databases when they collected, you know, through sweepstakes and other, you know, other programs where they're encouraging people to sign up on their own website. So often a brand's first party data is a little less sophisticated than a retailer's. We hear a lot of people talk about using first party data or the importance of it. But then the question is, how are you using it? Right. So um, just because you have it doesn't mean it's worth anything if you're not tapping into it, too. And that's where some of these DMPs and all this really can help us make use of it. Second party data you'll hear is data is for someone else's first party data that maybe one to one you share or work together on. Third party data would be going and tapping maybe like an exchange or an aggregate, an aggregator where they have lots of different data available and you're pulling from it. Again, maybe it's using third party data to go target yeah. because you, you don't have it yourself. And the old email, uh, email marketing would be buying a list of somebody exactly. else's to, you know, target against and yours, right? And, uh, and so obviously there's some magic in trying to put uh, my first party data as a brand with the retailer's first party data, but the privacy, confidentiality, you know, regulations and such has birthed this new word, uh, words, clean rooms. And so clean rooms is something that uh, is really evolved in the last two two years or so. Explain what clean rooms are. Are these people in white coats that sit in some room? You know, what's a clean room? I, I don't. I don't want to keep anyone from putting on, you know, wear, wearing their favorite costume or whatnot as they uh, take on a new role. But this is clean room is the concept of a space where those two separate entities, a brand and a retailer, or a brand and a DSP, whatever, whatever, you know, it doesn't have to just be a brand. But we're talking to brands today, right? Um, a brand and a retailer in this case can come together share their first party data in a privacy conscious manner. And I kind of keep bringing that up. There are, so, there, I'm not an expert in how you keep it pri privacy conscious, but there are lots of guidelines and regulations, but it's really that like kind of black box where everything can go in together, be matched up and used, and then, and, and then, and then leveraged for whatever objectives, joint objectives, the retailer and the brand are aligning on. So if you're a brand, you have first party data, you put it into a clean room to better match it up with the retailer's audience. It, it gives you some security, I suppose, that that information is not going to violate your confidentiality agreements with your first party uh, customers. It, exactly. Right. And because, and, again, we may have emails of loyal consumers and we want to go after those beyond just our own email. We want to tap them because we know us, we want to see how many what share of those shop at Walmart, right? So that might be an opportunity where we were partnering in a clean room to in, to siphon those th that those groups out so that we can target them in other ways on that platform without it feeling like it's, because th this is what's interesting. Everyone wants a personalized experience, but no one wants to, it's kind of like, we, we don't want to know what goes into making our food, but we really want the food, right? So I was like, like, I, I don't want to know that you, that you did what you did to, bring me a better shopper experience, but I still want it. Right. So as, but I need to, I, there are, there are a lot of increasing concerns over privacy and data. And so this is the right step to be able to do that so that we are, you know, I'm not saying it's perfect yet, but it's the right, it's a step in the right direction towards maintaining consumer privacy while also giving us the personalized experiences we actually are voting with our dollars to achieve. 
And if you look at clean rooms in the context of uh, how many are out there by retailer network, uh, uh, retail media networks, is this something that the majority of retail media networks offer as a feature, the ability to set up a clean room, or is that really only for those that are heavily focused on, say, uh, off-platform, or does it really matter? I, I don't want to speak for the industry overall. I, I, this is not a totally new concept, but this is, again, I feel like it's, it's words being used that haven't necessarily been translated to active, perfect strategic practices. So this is a relatively new thing that I'm hearing across the industry from leading brands with big budgets who realize that they need to take not not just keep investing as they have, but take their investment to get even better ROI, as we were just talking about with sales and marketing merging together, we, we've got to get more from that budget if we're going to treat retail media as media. And so I, I, it's going to become more commonplace going forward. It's relatively new. I only hear a few top brands really talking about it today. And not all the retailers yet have all these capabilities, because to be fair, some of them were just launching retail media networks in 2020 and 2021 after COVID kind of pushed everyone over the, the cliff, right? So the, this, some of the, ma the major retailers are starting to tap into this. Uh, some of the, I would say, regional ones or smaller category-specific retailers have an opportunity to, to lean into this. But I do think this will be a, a commonplace uh, space to go and pool data together because the data is going to be so important for both sides. Yeah, and when you start getting into this level of technology, I'm sure it's pull another chair up to the table and invite IT or somebody that has you know an ability to to customize your tech stack to deal with that. Um, let's go to the word it's very common, uh, but maybe not understood in the context of retail media networks, and that's the word segmentation. Uh, when you hear segmentation, what, does it mean the same thing as you would hear in traditional media? But, you know, talk to me about that. No, that's a great question. So I, I think it generally means the same thing. It's just that with retail media first-party data, we actually can go from a potential consumer to an actual lap shopper, right? Like so, or, or a current shopper or a heavy buyer, right? Now, I don't want to say having been in marketing myself and having run campaigns before I was in e-commerce um, as a practitioner, we were in theory targeting our loyal consumers or our, so there, there, were, there, there was data in certain instances to try to access someone that we had thought was had a higher pr propensity to buy, it was less directly connected to real purchase behavior, the way now we technically can get through our retail media network. So this really opens up, I would say a lot, some some more fine tuned objective opportunities that we can drive and gives us, I, I would say it, it's kind of, it, I always like to think of it, it's like the people have, you know, in a survey, people shared that their purchase intent was X percent towards this. But then in actuality, they like only half of them actually bought it, right? I'd rather go with the, the actual behavior, not just the intended behavior, even though those two are helpful together to see the correlation. So segmentation in this, whether you're using a clean room or you're just using the self-service DSPs or what, it's, it's saying, this is my objective. This is the, to achieve that objective, the, the, these are the KPIs for success. And, and this is the audience that would I need to target to get that. This capability can do that. And these are the segments I'm going to go after, right? Whether it's more macro, just lapsed users, 
who stopped buying six months ago, or whether it's, you know, whether it's even more specific with demographics and psychographics than anything else that the retailer or, or the DSP may offer. Yeah. And, and seg what, what retail media networks do is give you much more granularity on a set and confidence in a segment that you may not have been able to reach with confidence using, you know, implied intent or whatever versus actual uh, purchase. So it does strengthen that current buyer and uh, type of segment in a level of accuracy that you wouldn't get if you're off platform with no closed loop piece, which we'll get into in a minute. You mentioned the word objectives. Objectives are really important. If you come from a sales background or shopper background, um, objectives might feel different than if you're in a pure marketing brand role and you're talking about your marketing objectives. Uh, when you hear the word objectives in a retail media network, I'm, I'm talking more around the brand objectives. What are some of the common objectives uh, that that you need to consider when being in this space? That's a great question. So again, I, I've been a marketer and a sales leader and then a third party watching the world go, go to bat. And so there are going to be, you know, we can think of objectives from kind of the traditional marketing funnel around just awareness, consideration, conversion, loyalty. And then, you know, I've seen some that add advocacy and, you know, that you become the champion of the brand. That, 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 that's one level, right? Because I've got to pull people into conversion. So you, you may see objectives around awareness, you know, awareness within a target audience, right? You know, um, you know in, in reach and, and number of impressions and share of voice. And, and, and then obviously as we get down the funnel, you'll see, you know, that some of these objectives turn into like some of these more tactical KPIs of clicks and click-through rate and conversion and time on site, depending on whether it's your website or, you know, uh, retailers and all, all, all of those. But thinking through the commercial lens, though, almost always, even though I do want to drive awareness and consideration, which might be the precursor to the conversion I really want, I conversion is, is one of many things, right? And so I always go back to my days of sitting next to the analysts that worked at Reckitt um, from IRI or Nielsen, because we had both during my, my six years there. And one of them sat next to me for a long time. So I got to learn a lot about how you drive growth because they had the charts up and were always on the phone talking about and working with me and others. But it was that idea of to grow. Um, when I convert, my growth is a function of the number of shoppers, right? Which might be net new or current or laps, bringing them back in. Um, my... Uh, and my buy rate, right, which would be the number of dollars per trip and the number of trips per shopper. That sounds so basic, but when you blow that out, there are actually 12 different growth objectives in the conversion stage, right, where I want to get lapsed buyers, current buyers, new buyers for the brand, or all three of those for the category, which hopefully also benefits me. And then there's, you know, different ways I can drive basket size, right? Like cross sell, trade up, stock up, or, or, you know, repeat purchase. It could just be straight repeat. It could be new occasions. Um, so, so there's, there's so many different objectives. And the problem is so, so many times it's like, we, we either rest on, I want awareness. Well, awareness for what? Like awareness with who, right? I, maybe that's, maybe that's obvious to the person saying it, but we want to be the, we can better segment by being more specific about the, actual objective and then when we only achieve awareness but no actual sales if that was truly our objective then maybe we'll be okay with that right as opposed to then judging an awareness campaign on roi or 
return on ad spend, I know we'll talk to measurement in a few minutes, it, we may be hurting ourselves by not really sticking to objective tactics that deliver that objectives, KPIs that define that success, and then the results did they actually deliver. I feel like yep. we we look at it holistically at the wrong point in the in the in the process. Well, I think what's new about retail media networks in terms of the objective conversation is that it is such an end-to-end -end broader concept that it opens up opportunities for impact across more objectives than you would traditionally think of a single media of like say buying on Facebook or buying on Instagram, You're, it's a different type of buy. It's a different type of ecosystem. So it, I, of all the words that we, of the 20 we're going through, uh, the conversations in my mind really need to be about objectives because it's what can make or break your performance of whatever you think that performance should be. Um, it's a very different type of conversation than we might've had in the past where you can affect more upper funnel, if you will, or lower funnel objectives than uh, you might think. What 100%. And so, so like I said, I, I never want to, I know, I never want to overshadow or put the marketing objectives in a corner. I just always would say that the funny thing is when marketers want to achieve equity scores and, and awareness goals, I, I say, yay, but is it your ultimate intent with that to get someone to actually buy being aware of it? only matters so long, you know, until they don't actually make the purchase or close the deal, right? So maybe that's, maybe sales got to me over the years and I've converted, right? But I yeah. think it's, it's think if I'm a brand, I want awareness with my current shoppers for an opportunity to get them to buy again, uh, an expandable consumption opportunity. And notice though, consumption, they bought, like mm -hmm. they closed the deal. Yes, they had to become aware first. So maybe that tactic was just to get them engaged and then as you get to the point of purchase, that's where it closes a deal in store or online. But I just see so many, it's like we separated all the tactics and then judged them differently and not for their ultimate end goal. We're not all the same number of degrees away from Kevin Bacon, as I always like to say. So yeah. we need to, we need to re link, link ourselves up there. Excellent, excellent. Okay, well, let's go into measurement because you started to dip your toe into that space a bit and measurement is a, area there's a lot of acronyms as well that is sometimes misunderstood let's take the easy ones and we'll work into some more complicated ones uh, cpm so cpm is 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 part of measurement but it's also the co the cost model used for often for you know both on-site display on platform or off-platform display and a number of things this is a often associated with display but it can be for other things it's a cost per thousand impressions where the m comes from it's french so cost per meal is where you get that but it's it's you buying access a share of the inventory out there a share of the impressions uh, against an audience you're targeting um because there might be a, a gross amount of it and 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 you you're willing to pay a certain amount to get that audience for whatever your objective is um cpm isn't the actual like performance goal, but CPM gets tricky because we compare costs. We might say, oh, well, Google and you know Meta, Facebook, their CPMs are lower versus my CPM at Walmart Connect or at Roundell. That could just be subjective pricing, right? But it could also be, well, because technically I may be able to access better data from the one, you know, from the retail side, in theory, right? We, we can keep it at the theoretical level. I, I can buy better data that's closer to the point of purchase that 
I can then also measure better as we'll talk to here. Um, so it, you can't always look at CPM as apples to apples because you're going to want to look at the performance of the cost model to know whether was was the higher cost per thousand impressions worth it. There's one other thing, Andy, I'll throw in there is viewability is, is another thing. Impressions just mean that you, so when I pay $5 per thousand impressions, that doesn't mean I actually got all of those impressions. An impression is just served on the page that it was intended to, to the target audience. But if it was down the page and somebody didn't scroll down, it wasn't necessarily viewed. So some of the costs per CPMs are based on the viewability of the ad because a you know a homepage placement at the top of a retailer's site is going to have a higher viewability than the one at the very bottom of their site so the cost should offset themselves a bit so that the performance is is is, is appropriately balanced but that those, I think that's why nuances. you've got to really understand each of the retailers algorithms and how they count that a simple example like LinkedIn they don't count an impression unless it's 300 milliseconds of viewability you know it's on your screen somewhere there uh, you know, everybody chooses their own algorithms on that. And so it's so important to really understand those algorithms on what is viewable, what, you know, what's counting as an impression. So it, it's great because they're not all apples to apples. Uh, and, and then close cousin to CPM is CPC. So, so that, that is CPC. a cost per click model, um, which is, you know, not totally separate in this, in this ecosystem of retail media, but that's often the cost model associated with a paid search or a sponsored product or brand advertisement on a retailer. And it, that's a little different because in that instance, a CPM was I'm paying for a, you know, a cost per thousand impressions of reach within this audience. Cost per click is I'm bidding or, or paying a cost to, sh to, to get clicked on. If I don't get clicked on, I don't pay, but I technically want to be clicked on because if you, if, if I get clicked on, that means I have the chance to convert the sale, right? So, um, so and, and different, We again, we could go into, I, I realize we could have way more definitions here, but cost per clicks are often uh, bid auctions because many different brands will want to show up for the words laundry detergent, right? So so it, there's, there's a level of auction going on to see who will show up in those coveted placements in paid search still only pain if someone actually clicks on you. Um, but there's also something, this goes back to that PDP thing that we talked about before, the relevance of your PDP and your the relevance of your products on the digital shelf as it plays to your conversion history, the keywords you have in your content, that can actually help you pay less in the cost per click because the more relevant you are, uh, the better the shopper experience is. So there's a whole there's a whole algorithm behind that. But actually, what's nice is it the cost per clicks can get high, but you actually may pay less as you become more relevant in both organic search and in paid search. So there's a little bit of a checks and balances there. Because yeah, and I, and I think it's important to you know pay attention to each retailer's algorithms because some may have more uh, sponsored type uh, paid slots before they get to the organic. And if you may have a really awesome organic PDP, but then uh, based on how many positions they're selling, get pushed pretty far down, even with the best organic. So that's something to keep in mind of what's, where's that direction of travel and how's that working uh, for your brand.
and, and it really is in, in today's world, especially when it comes to media overall, it's a paid and organic play, right? And this was true, to be honest, in store too, right? If you could get an end cap, even if you're at eye level in the aisle, you're, you're going to want both, right? At different right. points. The, the nice thing with paid search is that I want to show up organically. But as you said, Andy, you might show up several rows down, even when you're the number one product organically because of how much the retailers monetize the top of their site with those paid placements. So it really becomes a paid and earned or paid and organic play. But that also, I would say, includes display and other capabilities too, because this isn't just build it and they will come. It's build it and drive people so that you earn and then continue to drive, but you can earn to pay less as you yeah, drive. And, and so that's why just being a great digital shelf and a PDP, it's, 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 you've got to have hand in glove. And that is includes the retail media network strategy you're using alongside your digital shelf approach. Um, next, next one, a closed loop measurement. Uh, take us through that. You hear that word closed loop measurement quite a bit with retail media networks. It, it definitely needs an asterisk because not everyone has the same ability to measure you know, the, the full closed loop. But the idea of closed loop, it's a process of measurement that retailers and I would say direct-to-consumer uh, brands have the ability to do to a degree, um, using their data to understand how marketing or other touch points are impacting sales. So really the idea of closed loop is I did A and I got B. I did A and B and I got C, right? And, and the idea is that I can really see the cause and effect. An omni-channel retailer like a Walmart or a Target or Kroger has the ability to see with maturing data, the offline sales as well. Um, if I'm a direct-to-consumer site, I'd only be able to see what I had online only, but that can be really interesting too. So closed loop is kind of the holy grail because in a perfect world, I want to be able to attribute the performance to something specific or a set of somethings I've done and not just, hey, I did 15 activities in store and I hope it drove a lift. Oh, there yep. was a lift. I guess it worked. Like it's really seen what worked. Um, yep. and what drove what results. And we'll get into that attribution here in a second. Uh, let's talk about ROAS and uh, ACOS, ACOS. Uh, talk to me about what ROAS means and why is it important? You'll hear a lot about ROAS as the primary metric that most retailers will provide for almost any type of on or off platform media. Uh, and that stands for return on ad spend. Um, ACOS or, or ACOS is just the inverse of that. So ROAS is the sales I achieved from a campaign, retail sales over the ad spend I invested in it, right? So, you know, so if I, if I got $100,000 in sales and I spent 50,000, that meant I got a $2 ROAS, right? Um, and ACOS would just be the inverse of that, right? It's just the cost, um, divided by the sales I got. So Amazon has been one that uses ACOS in many instances. ROAS is the common one. It's the same. It's just the, it's just math. It's just flipping. But a lot of, a lot of people look at ROAS and think ROI and it's not the same thing. Um, return on ad that. spend is only the return on the advertising spend in question. Ro ROI is all of the value I got for all of the investment I got, which might include promotion and redemption and the COGS, right? My cost of goods sold. So depending on how your organization and finance does the PNL, 
your ROI might be different, but, but either way, ROI is holistic. ROAS is only on the ad sales. Yeah. And, and, and the revenue that they're going to count against ROAS is going to be the retail price, not necessarily the wholesale price you sold to the retail. It's not your sales number. Exactly. It's the retailer sales number. Yeah, It's, it's not your you know, net sales ROI or your you know, right. gross margin ROI. It's the retail return in POS sales over the ad spend. But the other thing too, uh, to note with, with ROAS is again, and, and this gets into this closed loop. Hey, you said I got a $2 return on ad spend because I earned $100,000 for my 50,000 spend. Was that 100,000 only online? Because you also have in-store. Oh, there might've been more in-store. See, those are the kinds of questions you're gonna wanna ask. And then, so what was the, what's included in the return you're saying I'm getting? And what was the methodology you used to calculate that? Because maybe I don't believe some of your estimates, right? Um, and I might want to go more conservative on what I really think I got from this return. So yeah. ROAS is one, I know we'll talk to this a little bit here, but ROAS is one that you really have to dissect by, by objective, by tactic, by retailer, and by methodology used so that you can get that. It sounds like a lot of extra work, but it will end up saving you a lot of headache when you can see what really, what what good really looks like, depending on what your objective really was. Well, and as that evolves then to this IROAS, which is a newer uh, metric that we're seeing, uh, describe IROAS. So IROAS is, is it, it can be more manual or as some retailers are trying to in, improve this and be able to actually give you their version of this, this is incremental ROAS, right? So I'll, why why I need incremental ROAS in a perfect world is because ROAS, think about this. If I run a paid search campaign and I'm going to pick on laundry detergent again because I love the category, um, Tide, if Tide runs paid search on the keyword Tide, I imagine when people typed in Tide, they were probably had a higher likelihood of buying Tide on their own. They didn't need the paid search to, to, to convert them, right? Now, Tide might want to use that to show a new product or to defend against other competitors who might be using those paid placements to show up. So it's not wrong of them to do branded keyword searches and pay for that. But that might not be very incremental. So if you, Tide might say, hey, that campaign got me the highest ROAS I've ever seen. It must have been so successful. Well, actually, it was 20 cents incremental because everyone who clicked on, typed in Tide was gonna buy me anyway. I mean, I'm being really dramatic in that example, yeah. but IROAS is the either brand side manual calculation, which you can try to do of when I ran this campaign, I saw incremental baseline sales that in the event or ongoing, some retailers can actually say, use control groups. I know, I know Kroger, has some mm -hmm. abilities to look at the control versus test group and see same groups. This group bought nothing more in the, in the period after. And with, with your campaign, this group saw 20% lift, right? And so only the 20% ROAS is what we're going to look at as I ROAS, which was extra for you and really what you, potentially what your ultimate goal was. So I, I love, I, I mean, it's, it's still a little bit of an art and not a perfect science yet, but more and more retailers are realizing that not all ROAS is created equal. And in the end, I want bigger baskets. Yeah, and, and I've heard some describe incremental ROAS as also making sure that if they were going to buy it at Target and I just switch volume from buying it retailer A to retailer B, 
was that really incremental to the brand? 100%. I mean, there's so many ways that we're going to want to look at incrementality to get incremental growth, right? Like, right. Um, that's what everybody's actually trying to do. It's just amazing how many times I see brands say, we're getting great ROAS. And you're like, but your business didn't change at all. You weren't right. going down. And so you're not maintaining and you're not going up. So you're not growing. So I, yeah. is it really working? I don't know. Um, you're not even winning on the digital shelf. So I can't say that that's working either. So I'm not being snarky to them, but you know, it's, it's really dissecting ROAS and thinking yeah. about it. You've really got to go to school to understand the measurement options available to you and what and how to dig into them and understand them, uh, which will start to bring us home on the last couple. So let's look at attribution. You got uh, last touch and multi-touch. Uh, explain that and why is that important? So these are just two different methodologies and practices um, leveraged by different, different players in the industry. But if we look at retailers, this would be looking at um, last touch would be the last uh, the, the last advertising touch point that can be attributed to the purchase, right? So if let's just say I as a shopper might have bumped into three or four different advertisements from you as a brand who were running display and paid search and whatnot, last touch would be the very last one, maybe it was just the paid search ad at the very end that was the last thing I saw before I put it in the cart, that would get the sale, right? So my display that was the first touch doesn't get any credit for that because it doesn't want a false credit that maybe it really was the paid search that drove it. So that's last touch. Now, multi-touch would, would try to give credit to all of those touch points. And, and that's really the idea of like, okay, A, if somebody only sees A, they have this result. But somebody saw A, B, and C saw five times that result. And that's really, I, I would say multi-touch has a lot, of, a lot of benefit here because this gets me the right mix of activity, right? Because it's never going to be one activity alone that did everything. Um, it might be for that one shopper, but at an aggregate, it's going to be many touch points in the journey that moved me to the cart in-store online. And so multi-touch helps give credit where credit is due and what moved me down that path. Uh, excellent. Uh, and then the last one that goes with that, which is very related to multi-touch, is MMM or market mix modeling. Describe that because I think it's a it's an avenue to get to the multi-touch attribution. So, so MMMs are media mix modeling or marketing mix modeling. Yeah. I've heard you know, different M's used, but that's typically a brand-driven, a, a brand advertiser-driven, top-down approach to trying to get a, a sense of how all the different marketing activities that they ran during a, a season, a campaign, a, a portion of the year, other other drivers, pricing, seasonality, any other variables that they, they, they think might have an impact, how that impacted sales and ROI. It, it can be very valuable to try to do that because that's actually where you could see that Google advertising did X and that Facebook did this across retail. And that this is where a lot of, brands are finding that Amazon is having a much bigger impact beyond Amazon, right? But the hard part with MMMs is the timing. You don't, you don't get those real time. You get those every six months or every 12 months or however often your brand, you know, your CPG organization is willing to do them. So it, the speed of data, you're going to get ROAS much more quickly on a campaign, especially paid search. Um, where, where you're doing self-service and seeing it kind of real time, you're going to get that much more quickly than you're going to get the multi-touch, last-touch attribution from like an end-of-campaign report. 
from your retailer, and then you're going to get those much sooner than you're going to get an MMM from your own organization when they do those periodically. MMM is still a little bit of an art, even though, because there, there are just so many things we don't know, and it, it is hard to measure those, but it is our way of trying to get to a scientific impact of a mix of things that we've done in the market and how each of them drove and which ones are more important in the mix. Yeah, we were doing MMM modeling in, in ASTA and, and uh, back in, two, started in 2017, and it does give you some really interesting insights, a little bit of a black box art to it uh, that you've got to do. And if you don't refresh it at some periodic level, it degrades pretty quickly. So it's, uh, but it's, you're certainly not real time and certainly worth doing to try to get to the multi-touch attribution, but you do need big data lots of big data sets to, to pull that off. Um, it, well, it, wow. It, it, I, I, I would say it, it's just interesting. Um, some of my organizations in the past would do media mix modeling and because of the speed of e-com change, they'd be using a two-year-old stat to determine whether we should invest in retail media. And you're like, but you don't even have retail media included because we did none of it two years ago or we did so little of it or we didn't, you know, we didn't invest in, Kroger Precision Marketing two years ago or last year at the scale that we have now. So maybe the impact is greater because we're actually investing enough to see a real impact, right? Some of these investments were so small in the past that they were blips right. in the night. They would have never shown an impact. That's but, right. So, so it's important to, it's not question MMMs. It's just push back on, are we, are we doing them fast enough or including the right? Are we investing enough to actually see the impact of the things that we're trying to determine if we should invest in or otherwise we get into a weird like, you know, catch 22 and we don't invest ahead of the curve? Yeah, I mean, uh, media mix modeling requires a certain baseline of histor historical data for it to work. And, and as we've just discussed over these 20 definitions, almost every single one of them are going through a level of hyper evolution. So the to get the baselines there of two years ago, this this looks nothing like what it did, you know, two years ago. Um, so this has been fantastic. I really appreciate it, Chris. I feel like we got a master class in terminology. Uh, hopefully, people will uh, uh, have gotten some enlightenment on some of those that they hadn't really understood before. Uh, and uh, really greatly appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this. And if someone wants to go deeper on any of these, they should call up First Mover and yourself, and uh, you can probably put some kind of a training together for them. Would love to support anybody anytime um, in any any format, right? unofficial or official. We're always here to support you. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends, and I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas's Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Walton College original production. 